Open your Bibles, please, to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And in our study of 1 Corinthians, we now come to chapter 9, and I, I fear that there is a, a tendency to allow the chapter divisions to dictate our understanding of Scripture. That is that we tend to view the Bible, or any part of the Bible, as a collection of distinct, separate, disparate things that are sort of cobbled together, and, and we call this the Bible. And even when it comes to 1 Corinthians, in which we know, we know that 1 Corinthians is a letter that Paul wrote to the people in Corinth, we still allow the chapter divisions to say, well, okay, this is the end of this thought, catch our breath and let's go on to the next, uh, the next issue. And if this is the approach that we take, that we somehow see not as a letter but a series of quaint sayings, then I think we will fail to appreciate and understand with any depth what is being said. But in this particular instance, we will fail to feel the impact of what Paul is saying to the Corinthians. Because if you just casually read the end of chapter 8 and then the beginning of chapter 9, um, you will see that there's a radical shift. Uh, almost gives you whiplash, it, that it, it changes so radically. But we sort of expect it to be different because it's a new chapter. New chapter, new thought. But Paul didn't write it in chapters, okay? He wrote a letter. By the way, just for your information, the New Testament was divided into chapters in 1205 by a man named Stephen Langton, who was a professor at Paris, later became Archbishop of Canterbury. The verse divisions came later, uh, a man named Robert Estienne, or Stephanus, and these were finally adopted in 1565. So, for the majority of the church's history, people have not had the benefit, I put in quotation marks, of chapter and verse divisions. Um, and what we've had, as we have every Sunday with the reading from the Old Testament and the New Testament, most people wouldn't have copies of that, and so they would have to listen and not think of it in terms of chapters or verses, but often of sentences and paragraphs. Having said all that, here in chapter 9, Paul is following the pattern that we've talked about thus far in 1 Corinthians, the ABA uh, way of arguing. That is, he brings up the initial issue in A, or A1, and then he, he seems to shift subject quite radically to something else, and we call that B, and then he comes back to what he was talking about with A, but it's, he has changed it a bit. There are some changes and some variations. We've seen this in chapter 5. We've seen it in chapter 7. Chapter 7, I think, is the most, well, at this point, the best example, because he's talking about marriage and about sexuality, and then all of a sudden he starts talking about slavery and about calling uh, and ethnicity and all that. And it's like, well, what does that have to do with marriage? Well, he's trying to make a point that wherever you were when God called you, that's where you should stay, and that's Paul's principle for marriage. Here, Paul does it not in one chapter, but in three chapters. A1 is chapter 8, A2 is chapter 10, and in between is chapter 9. If you took out chapter 9 and went from chapter 8 to chapter 10, it would make perfect sense, because it's the same issue, the same topic, going to pagan temples and eating the meat that is sacrificed to idols. Chapter 9 is about something entirely different. And depending on whether or not you take a holistic view of Scripture, that it all is supposed to fit together, it does make sense. Paul knows what he's doing. 
I think it will determine how you understand this. See, for the Corinthians, their basis of conduct was knowledge. If you know something is right, you can do it. If you know something is wrong, you shouldn't do it. And Paul is saying, no, the basis of conduct is love. Because I may, in fact, have the right to do something, but if I know it will cause somebody else to fall into sin, I won't do that. I have the right to, and I know that I have the right to, but because of love, I choose not to. Paul wants to deal with their attitude, and he does in chapter 8, before he deals with their actions, which he will deal with in chapter 10. As I said, chapter 9 marks a dramatic shift away from what he's talking about. And if you look at the first two verses, Paul starts with a series of questions. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? Even though I may not be an apostle to others, surely I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. We might ask, where is this coming from? Paul has been talking about not going to pagan temples and that he would never do this if it would cause someone else to fall into sin. And suddenly he's asking a series of rhetorical questions. All questions, which, by the way, would require a positive answer. Am I not an apostle? Yes, Paul, you are an apostle. Have I not seen the Lord Jesus or Jesus our Lord? Yes, you have. Uh, Am I not free? Okay, Paul, what exactly are you talking about? This is the first time that Paul directly addresses this issue of his apostleship. We've we've had hints of it. Um, We've had hints that his authority is being questioned. If you remember in chapter 4, he's talking to the Corinthians like, oh, you guys are at the front of the parade and we apostles are at the end of the procession like men condemned to die in the arena. So we've already had a sense that they don't think too highly of Paul. This is the first time, however, that it is about Paul himself. In chapter 4, it was about the apostles, we apostles. Now this is about Paul himself. Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? And I think... This is important that he asks this question. It is in conjunction with him being an apostle. That is, for Paul to claim to be an apostle required that he would in fact have seen the Lord Jesus. And when did he see Jesus? As best we can tell, he did not see him during his earthly ministry. He did not hear Jesus during his earthly ministry. Uh, The one event in which he did see Jesus was on the road to Damascus. And this will be mentioned again in chapter 15 in the book of Acts, which we're reading through in our reading in the New Testament. Paul will, the conversion of Paul, Paul on the road to Damascus is mentioned three times. Not simply once and please go back and see the, you know, the original account. It is mentioned three specific times. Paul does insist that he has seen the Lord Jesus. The road to Damascus, the experience was not simply his conversion, it was his commissioning. It was Jesus commissioning him to be an apostle. Are you not the result of my work in the Lord? He points to his planting churches or establishing churches as a mark of his apostleship. He will do this in other letters, by the way. And I think there's something here that we need to understand. Someone who has seen the Lord Jesus and someone who establishes churches, these are to be the marks of an apostle. That may surprise you because in Acts chapter 1, when they were trying to replace Judas Iscariot, uh, they said they needed to vote. Uh, Peter said we need to vote. Three qualifications. 
someone who's been baptized by John, uh, someone who has been with Jesus throughout his ministry, and someone who has seen the resurrected Jesus. Well, Paul doesn't fit any of these three. But Paul has seen the Lord Jesus, and Paul is someone who plants churches. If you think about it, the apostles, I guess in our minds, we always think they stayed in Jerusalem, but they didn't. In fact, an apostle is not in charge of the church of Jerusalem. James, the half-brother of Jesus, is. The apostles scattered, and they all had their own ministries, their own fields, and they planted churches wherever they went. And Paul says, that's what I do. And in fact, you, Corinthian church, you are a seal. You are proof that I'm an apostle because I came to Corinth and I established a church there and you, in fact, are that church. So you, better than anyone, should know that I'm an apostle. If I'm an apostle, then what are my rights? What are the prerogatives of being an apostle? Well, in verses 3 through 14, this is what Paul talks about. And again, we may ask ourselves, what does this have to do with eating in pagan temples? This is my defense to those who sit in judgment on me. Don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers and Cephas? Or is it only I and Barnabas who must work for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk? Do I say this merely from a human point of view? Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us because when the plowman plows and the thresher threshes, they ought to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have the right of support from us, or from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? But we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Don't you know that those who work in the temple get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in what is offered on the altar? In the same way, the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. Although Paul says this is the beginning of his defense of those who sit in judgment on him, the focus seems to go not so much about Paul being an apostle, it's about whether or not Paul is a genuine apostle, whether or not he has a right to material support from them. I have to tell you, this is a recurring issue. It will come up again in his second letter. Apparently, if we could read between the lines, the Corinthians are unhappy with Paul. They wanted to pay him. They wanted to support him financially, materially, and he refused to take their support. Instead, he worked for a living. They're very offended by this. And so Paul now must deal with it. All the while, by the way, in the back of our minds, we're wondering, what does this have to do with, with eating in pagan temples? The next section, by the way, in verses 15 through 18, we'll get to it in a bit. He will explain why he didn't accept their support. But at this point, he must say, he must prove that he has the right to the support. Why is this an issue at all? I mean, why, why does Paul have to talk about this at all? Well, in the Greco-Roman world, teachers were viewed not only in terms of what they taught and their presentation, but also in terms of their means of support. That is, if somebody was a great teacher, they would have a patron 
or they would charge a certain amount. If you're a great teacher, you can charge more. Or they would have to work for a living, but apparently you're not that good of a teacher because you have to supplement. Or you would end up being a beggar, as the father of the cynic or the cynical school of in, in Greek philosophy did. He was a beggar. I think the Corinthians are embarrassed because they have to tell people that their pastor, the man who teaches them, the man who has brought them the good news, has to work for a living. And he doesn't work as a manager or as a supervisor or pushing papers. He has to actually work with his hands. He actually sews tents. Paul would work in the daytime and then preach at night. By the way, next time, the next reading from the New Testament next week, Acts chapter 18, Luke will tell us that this is what Paul did, and that's how he met Priscilla and Aquila. They were also tent makers, and apparently they went into business together, and they worked with their hands. And I don't know much about sewing tents. I'm assuming it's rather difficult work to, to get the needle and the thread to go through thick canvas or the materials that they would use. It's difficult work. And, and the Corinthians are embarrassed. Why does their pastor have to work? Well, Paul wants to prove to them, I don't have to work. Okay? I have a right to expect that you would support me materially and financially. So he begins his defense, his apologia. One thing happens, interestingly, though, in this passage, and I don't know if you caught it. Um, in the first three verses, Paul uses the first person singular, I. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? But beginning in verse 4, he switches to the first person plural. Don't we have a right to food and drink? Uh, so he's not simply saying, I, Paul, have the right to this. But those who preach the gospel, those who are apostles, have this right. And they have a right to three things, at least, that he mentions. To have his daily, supply, his daily needs supplied, food and drink. The right to have a wife who would accompany him in travel. And the right to not have to work in a trade to support himself. Don't we have a right to food and drink? This is not the same food and drink we were talking about in chapter 8, in case you're thinking there's a connection here. It's more the mundane thing of just staying alive. Don't I have a right to survive to have someone supply me with food and drink? And, and, and where would Paul get these things when he was in Corinth? Hopefully from the believers in the church there. Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us? And Paul points out that others have done this. Other apostles, the Lord's brothers, James, the half-brother of Jesus, uh, who is the head of the church in Jerusalem, Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, the author of the, the epistle of Jude. Uh, we don't know about uh, the other two brothers, Joseph and Simon. We don't know their place in the church. But apparently James had a wife, and he took his wife with him wherever he traveled. And Cephas, the name that Jesus gave to Peter, we know that he was married. He had a mother-in-law because Jesus healed his mother-in-law in Capernaum. Others have this right. Doesn't Paul have the right to have a wife? But we've already looked at chapter 7 where Paul has given this up. He does not have a wife. He is a single apostle. By the way, just parenthetically, isn't it interesting that Apparently, when the apostles traveled to do the work of ministry, the wives did not stay home. 
the wives travel with them. You know, the idea of somehow the wife staying home and holding down the fort. No, she goes with him when he travels for ministry. The third question Paul asks is, is it only I and Barnabas who must work for a living? Not only did Paul not take any support from them, but he supported himself by working. And why mention Barnabas, by the way? Barnabas, as, as far as we know, never went to Corinth. This is after the big split. Remember, Paul and Barnabas uh, split up, and then so Paul traveled with Silas. Why mention him? Well, I think one of two possibilities. Either Barnabas has a reputation for this, or Paul told him, I learned this from Barnabas. Barnabas told me, Paul, you need to support yourself by working. So Paul says, I have the right. And, and then he gives four proofs or four illustrations to show this. The first is from everyday life. Those who work and are paid by others. A soldier. A soldier expects to be paid by someone else. Even if he's a mercenary, he expects to be paid by someone else. Someone who tends vineyards, someone who takes care of a flock, they all expect to be paid as a result of the work that they have done. Paul says it only makes sense. The second uh, thing that he mentions is a command from scripture in everyday life this is the way it is and by the way that's what the scripture says and again just parenthetically you may remember when we were talking about the ten commandments the ten commandments are not God saying I'm the boss of you you have to do this the ten commandments are God saying okay this is the world I made and this is the way it is and this is how you should live there's only one God so don't worship other gods uh, you didn't get here on your own, so honor your mother and father. This is a description of reality. So, are we surprised that the law of Moses tells us the same thing that everyday life tells us? We shouldn't be it at all. This is the principle, or this is the law that is given. Whenever you thresh grain, you would put it on the threshing floor, and you would have an ox that would walk around either in a circle or back and forth, pulling a heavy wooden sled behind it. And this sled would separate uh, the kernels from, uh, the sh- from the stalks. And, you know, practically speaking, I don't know much about farming, but I'm thinking you want that ox to be muzzled. You want to tie up his mouth because otherwise he's going to be eating everything on the ground. And God says, here's my law. When you thresh, when you, when you, you do that, don't muzzle him. Don't let him eat as much of whatever he wants. Well, God, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Economically, that doesn't make sense. And Paul asks the question, is God only concerned about the oxen? Well, God is concerned about animals, by the way. Paul's point is this. There's a principle here. Everyone who participates in the project gets to share in the benefits of the project. The man who plants the man who waters, the man who harvests, the animal itself that threshes, everybody gets to share in it. That's the principle that we find in the law. And so Paul says those who plant the seed of the gospel have a right to expect a harvest of material support. The third example is found from temples. And here I don't know that Paul is simply talking about the temple in Jerusalem, but any temple If you work in a temple, you get paid by the temple. The food they bring in to sacrifice to the gods, you get to eat. That's just an everyday principle. But then lastly, he gives us the command of Jesus. And here there's no analogy, no metaphor. 
This is what Jesus said. Um, when Jesus sent out the twelve, let me read to you from Matthew chapter 10. Do not take along any gold or silver or copper in your belts. Take no bag for the journey or extra tunic or sandals or a staff. For the worker is worth his keep. In other words, when you go out on mission, don't take anything. Don't say, well, man, I need money for food. I need money for a place to live. And in case my sandals wear out, I need to buy a new pair of sandals. Uh, Jesus says no. The people you preach to, they're supposed to take care of you. Another time when he sent out not 12, but 72 men to preach the gospel. He said, when you enter a house, first say peace to this house. If a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. If not, it will return to you. Stay in that house, eating and drinking whatever they give you, for the worker deserves his wages. Don't take any money. When you get to a town, pick a house and stay there and they will feed you. You deserve to be fed. So Paul says, I have the right to expect to be taken care of. But now he makes a left turn in verses 15 through 18. But I have not used any of these rights. If you think about it, that's true. He doesn't have a wife. He does work. He's not free from that. And he apparently has not taken any financial support from these people. And I'm not writing this in the hope that you will do such things for me. That is, he's not saying, okay, you haven't paid me before, but now I'm I'm writing this because you guys need to pay me. No. I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of this boast. Yet when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, for I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. If I preach voluntarily, I have a reward. If not voluntarily, I am simply discharging the trust committed to me. What then is my reward? Just this, that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge and so, that, and so not make use of my rights in preaching it. I think it's fairly simple and yet somewhat complicated because Paul's talking about boasting. And, and what does boasting have to do with all of this? The word boast is used 59 times in the New Testament. Paul uses it 55 of those times. So this is sort of a recurring theme with Paul. But he doesn't always use it negative, negatively. You may remember in the first chapter he talks about the boasting in Christ crucified. Paul will talk in other places of boasting of his weakness and his suffering. So when he says here he would rather die than let somebody deprive him of his boast, Paul, what are you boasting about? Well, it's not about his preaching. I do a great job. No. This is something he is compelled to do. Not some inner compulsion, but an external commission. He has been commissioned to preach. He has no choice. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. Not like he won't lose sleep, but there is a hint that there would be judgment from God. Paul still doesn't explain what his boast is. Rather, he focuses on being compelled. He doesn't see himself as somebody who signed up for the ministry, but as someone who got drafted into the ministry. You see, someone who signs up as a free person, they get paid. You're a soldier, you work in a vineyard, you take care of animals, you get paid. You work in a temple, you expect to be fed. Because you sign up for the job. Paul didn't sign up for the job. Okay? He didn't do this of his own free will. He was commissioned, he was drafted, he was conscripted. And therefore, he sees himself 
not as a worker, but more as a slave. A worker you pay, a slave you don't. And so what is Paul's boast? He works as a slave. That Paul can get up when he preaches and say, I'm here to preach to you today or tonight, not because I signed up for this job, but God commissioned me. I was on, I had another job. I was persecuting Christians. And God interrupted me and said, no, Paul, you're on my side now and you're going to do what I tell you to do. And so, folks, I'm here tonight to preach to you because I've been commissioned to preach to you. Well, Paul, we, we'd like to take a love offering for you. No. No, because people who do this voluntarily, they get paid. I got drafted, so I have to work to pay for myself. What is Paul's reward? His reward is this, that he gets no reward. His reward is to receive no payment. That's the way Paul wants it. Paul wants to be able to say the gospel is free and so am I. You don't have to pay me. I work for a living. By the way, he's already proved to us that someone who preaches the gospel has a right to be paid. But now he is saying, no, I do not accept that. I give you the gospel free of charge. Paul seems to delight in his weakness that he is compelled to preach, that he receives no material compensation. And now, for the rest of the chapter, that Paul allows others to dictate his actions. If you think the first 18 verses have been strange in the context of not eating in, in pagan temples, well, it gets even stranger here. Look, if you would, in verses 19 through 23. Though I am free, but that's how verse number one started out, and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law, so as to win those not under the law. To the weak, I became weak, to win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. Paul, again, asserts that he is free. But he gives up his freedom and makes himself a slave to win as many as possible. Just as he gives up the right to compensation so as not to hinder the gospel, now he describes his modus operandi, if you wish, of ministry. This is a passage that's really been misunderstood. People have understood this to mean that Paul accommodated the gospel to whatever audience he was talking to, that he would change the gospel just a bit depending on who he was talking to. No, that's not what Paul is saying here. Paul could not change the gospel. He would not change the gospel. The gospel remains timeless, no matter what culture, no matter who you are. But he himself could change. Could change what he ate, how he ate, the various customs uh, that people had. 
So if you wish, Paul would walk into a situation and basically say, okay, what's going on here? You're the boss. You call the shots. Is this a Jewish home? Is this, is this an observant home? Do you keep kosher here? Okay, then we'll, I'll keep kosher. Are you Gentile home? You know, are we having ham sandwiches for lunch? Whatever it is that you do in your house, in your circle of friends, that's what I'm willing to go with. So he became like a Jew when he was with the Jews. To those under the law, so it's not simply ethnicity, he would be like one under the law. Paul basically allowed others to dictate. He didn't say, hey, I'm Jewish, and as a Jew, I don't do that. I don't eat that. No. Paul put himself in each situation and changed to meet that situation. He didn't change the message. But as someone who was free, he made himself a slave. I don't know that the analogy works, but having grown up in the Philippines and having returned, uh, oftentimes people fail to realize that it's made up of uh, many ethnic groups, many different linguistic groups. And I know when I go home now, when I go shopping in the market, I have to ask the vendors, okay, do you speak Ilocano or do you speak Tagalog? And whatever it is they speak, then I'm like, okay, then that's what we will speak. They dictate the situation. I don't say, hey, I'm the customer, the customer's always right, you must speak what I do. We go with what they want. Or you go to some people's homes and they have utensils, other people's homes, those who, in other places, you eat with your fingers, you eat with chopsticks. Uh, whatever the situation is, they dictate. And Paul is saying, listen, I've got the good news. Okay, That's not going to change. But my situations do change. And I will be like them that I might share the gospel to them. We want to be careful, though, because when Paul says to those not under the law, that is the Gentiles, they don't have the Old Testament, I became as one not under the law. But then immediately he says, I am not free from God's law. Okay? Paul is not saying, you know, to thieves, hey, I'm a thief. You know, To adulterers, I'm an adulterer. No, he's not saying that at all. And I do think that the Corinthians were really somewhat put off by Paul's accommodation, that, that Paul culturally could just shift. And in, you know, He grew up in Turkey, but he was a Jew, so he grew up in a Gentile area, but in a Jewish community. And apparently Paul could make these transitions rather quickly. Could, could eat kosher one night, but then you know, eat something different with Gentiles the next night. And in both situations, share the gospel and say, this is the good news that Jesus Christ has come into the world. I find it fascinating the way that he ends this passage, though, because he says to the weak. Notice he doesn't say I became like one who was weak. He says, I became weak. Um, not the week of chapter eight. We're still looking for that connection with chapter eight. But those who in society are seen as powerless. Paul became all things to all men. He did not the message. The message remains the same. But he who is free to say, listen, hey, do you know who you're talking to? I'm an apostle. I was commissioned by God himself. No. Paul allows his host, the people he is speaking to, to dictate the social setting. Then we come to the last part of this chapter, 
which again seems to have nothing to do with eating in pagan temples. But you may be familiar with this passage. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Boy, this is even more puzzling. What is Paul talking about? Well, he uses a metaphor that would have been very familiar to them. Corinth had its own version of the Olympic Games. They were known as the Isthmian Games because of the isthmus that that, uh, Corinth straddled. The trade would go across the isthmus. Um, The the metaphors here, the people know. They know better than we do, unfortunately. And uh, we need to understand the metaphor to get the application. Paul says, do you not know? And there's a certain sarcasm here, I think. Because chapter 8 starts out, we all possess knowledge. We know that we all possess knowledge. And Paul is like, okay, you guys know everything. Do you not know? I mean, certainly you must know this. Only one gets the prize. When you read this passage as an American in the year 2004, and the Olympics were just held in August, and the gold medal, silver, bronze... I think we might read this passage and see Paul as focusing on the prize. Paul is talking about the prize, but his focus is somewhere else. And that is the self-control that is required to win the prize. In preparing for the games, you had to go into strict training. That is, you had to exercise self-control. And, you know, I think we would all agree, yeah, if you're going to be in the Olympics, you need to train. Um, What we don't understand is that in the Greek world, the preparation was also part of the games. Plato tells us in his writings that there were ten months of preparation before the Olympics. And if you did not follow the regimen of the ten months of training, you were disqualified. You didn't even get to run in the race. Okay? For us, you know, in the age of steroids and everything, all we're thinking about is getting across the finish line, getting the gold medal. For the Greeks, it was not simply the race itself. It was completing the preparation beforehand. Which I think is one reason why, if you think about it, what was first prize in Paul's day if you won the race? They gave you a wreath that you put around your head made of dried celery leaves. Okay, I don't know about you, but I was hoping for something a little better. Okay, I was hoping for something a little more substantial. Certainly something that would last longer. Because we think in terms of the product, we think in terms of the finish line, and the Greeks thought in terms of the preparation. Paul's thinking in terms of the preparation. He's telling the Corinthians, listen, You guys are thinking, hey, we're in. We're getting into heaven. We got our tickets. We're getting into heaven. And Paul's like, you're thinking about the finish line. You need to be thinking about the preparation. You need to be thinking about the race itself. Paul says, I know exactly what I'm doing. I'm not like somebody who's running around aimlessly like, as we say, a chicken with its head cut off. 
I'm not like a boxer who doesn't know what he's doing. I'm just sort of flailing around. Paul says, I know exactly what I'm doing. I am a man who is free to do as he pleases. But I don't. I don't. I have the freedom to have support from you. I have the freedom to have a wife. I have the freedom not to work. I have the freedom to dictate how we will behave in social settings. And Paul says, I give those all up. I know what I'm doing. It's for the sake of the gospel. And now we begin to get a hint of what Paul will say in chapter 10. If he can give up all these things which are his rights, then shouldn't the Corinthians give up this practice of going to pagan temples? That which will offend others, cause others to fall into sin. Chapter 9 is a celebration of Paul's rights and his freedoms. All of which he's given away. He's given them up. This free man is a slave. Why? That he might win some. That he might get them to see the truth of the good news. That Jesus Christ is Savior. As I've told you many times, your attitude towards Scripture will dictate whether or not you understand what is being said. If you have a rather cynical view, if you think it's not supposed to all fit together, then it won't. If you do think, in fact, it does make sense and it's supposed to fit together, it requires a little bit of work, but then it, it does begin to come together. And Paul will now say, listen, I as an apostle have given up my rights. You as Christians need to give up your rights as well. The Lord willing, we will look at chapter 10 next week. Let's pray together. Father, we could very easily blame our culture, the time in which we live, but we must confess that oftentimes we think in terms of performance, the final product, the finish line. Perhaps even our custom of meeting every Sunday, as you've commanded, that we begin to see this more in terms of a finish line and not recognize that the day-by-day preparation is just as important. We live in a culture that revels in its rights and its freedoms. People demand to have their rights. It is somewhat hard for us to hear Paul talk about his rights and then to see him give them away. But he knew what he was doing. He knew exactly what he was doing. He was seeking to win people to Christ. He was willing to give up everything that he might share the gospel with others. I ask that in the days to come we would think on this, think these issues through and meditate on them. I thank you for this beautiful day that we've been able to meet together. I ask that your grace, your spirit would go with us as we leave this place. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.